Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Hello, everybody. This is Lisa Borders. I am so delighted. We have a treat today. My good friend, Kevin White, the athletic director at my alma mater, Duke University, is in the house. Kevin, how are you? Lisa, I'm doing great. I'm honored to be with you. It'll be fun to talk about college athletics and whatever else is on your mind. Oh my God, because there's always something on my mind, Kevin, (laughs) but you bring such a rich history and background and career to all of this. And you have recently announced your retirement from Duke, where you're the athletic director today. So can I tell you, I'm just crying crocodile tears right now, my friend. You're very kind, if not overly generous. I've been at Duke, as I think, for 13 years and have been an AD. This is my 38th year. It's hard to believe that. And when you consider coaching prior to the appointments, that represents about 47 years. Perhaps long overdue, but at the same time, it'll be hard to move in another direction. But I will continue to teach at Fuqua, our business school, on the campus. I've taught my course for 38 years, so I've got a chance to reimagine my course and continue to teach and be at this phenomenal institution. I don't know if it could be any better than that. Wow. That is phenomenal. Almost 50 years in athletic. That is just beyond imagination, Kevin. And are you still having fun is what I want to know. I am. You know what? I love the relationships with the student athletes and quite frankly, the coaches and everybody else within the, the intercollegiate athletics community. And for us, it's a broad community at a place like Duke. So it's varsity sports, it's campus rec and intramurals, and club sports. It's a golf course. And we have about 300 employees, lots of coaches, a lot of young people within their career framework that are upwardly mobile. And I have the opportunity to get energized by hanging around them. And then there's (laughs) 740 student athletes, 740. And I love each and every one of them. So it's been wonderful. Oh my good. Let me unpack that a little bit, or let me invite you to unpack that a little bit because athletics and academics go hand in glove at Duke. And that's not true perhaps every place. I'm not trying to throw shade. I'm just trying to lift Duke in the work that you and your team have done. Can you talk about that combination of academics and athletics and why they are married at the hip for the programs that you've overseen at Duke and perhaps your entire career? You know, there's a couple of ways I might respond to that. One with a touch of pride and and maybe arrogance. We think we're the very best academically performing program in Division I. And there's enough empirical data to stand on that. We can say that and prove it. Okay, Um, let me me co-sign that right here. Okay, I'm there. There you go. But that's who we've been for a long time. That's where we've got a very non-negotiable history in that regard about being really responsible academically. So quite frankly, if that's who you are, then you go into the marketplace and you look for kids that want to subscribe to that. 
And so I've actually been caught up in my 13 years using the syntax that we're looking for kids that want to double major. They want to come to Duke and they want to major academically and they want to win national championships. So we want to major athletically. And it's a kind of a double major thing. So that's the young person that we recruit to this place. And so then we have to then deliver that experience. And hopefully on our better days, we cannot even over deliver that experience. And so the way we think about that a lot, we, I think we know who we are and what we are, but we've been that for a long time. We've always been a very high achieving athletics department uh, on the academic side. Love that. Cause we're in the business at Duke, obviously of building intellectual capital, but we're not just building brains. We're building people who can make a difference. So I'm so proud of the program that we have with our student athletes, but it goes beyond our student athletes. There's a whole lot of Duke hate going on out there, Kevin, but I'm sorry. I'm just going to wear it like a badge of honor <laughs> for the national championships. But also let's take that a little bit further. Dig a little deeper for me and talk about the programs that go beyond our scholarship athletes. Because we take athletics, we, we don't think that our athletes who receive scholarships are the only one who need physical activity or who want to compete or who just want to stay in shape. Talk about the programs that we have for kids beyond what folks perhaps see on TV or read about in a newspaper. Lisa, I think most folks would be very surprised to know that uh, we have, again, 27 intercollegiate teams, and they're comprised of 740 student athletes. I've already said that. But then we have 37 on any given year 37 club teams and our club teams are very competitive and they travel around the country and compete at the highest level within the the club realm. And then we have about 90% of our students on this campus that are involved in, again, campus rec, intramurals, club sports, and also varsity athletics. And that represents 90% of about 14,000 students. And then on top of that, quite frankly, we have 40,000 employees here. And I think most people are very surprised at that number, but that's a real number. That's a real headcount here at the university. And many of those are involved in some form of campus recreation, exercise, fitness, or whatever. So uh, this is a place where recreation and fitness is held in pretty high regard. Listen, it's been that way for more than a minute, but 13 years you've been at Duke, that's more than a third of your career as an AD. Are there things that stand out for you that happened at Duke? Maybe you even brought some of it from your other posts, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but are there special things about Duke that stand out in your mind that you either saw when you got there or you've accomplished since you've been there? I don't know that there's been a lot accomplished during my tenure that wasn't already in place. And and by the way, college athletics is a team sport. And I've already indicated we've had 300 employees, the 740 student athletes, 90% of the student bodies involved in all of these activities. We have 13,000 donors. I think people would be surprised at that. So we've got a lot of stakeholders. Sure. And we've got it as only, we have about 180,000 living alums and, and the 40,000 employees. So there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle, but it is, as I've described it already, it is a team sport. I think what I'm most proud of is the, and I use the word already, non-negotiable commitment to academics, but also in terms of just integrity, institutional integrity, that's non-negotiable here as well. And that's been our brand, and we've worked really hard to maintain it, and we put high value on that. But the integrity of this institution is paramount, and we work like crazy every day to, to do what we can to protect it. 
but in the world of college athletics, it takes you like a hundred years to build a pristine brand and it takes a nanosecond to put it in jeopardy and or to lose it or have it compromised. So we work on that each and every day, but that's one of the things here that's emboldened, I think, on all the staff and quite frankly, the student athletes, they own a piece of this rock and they're owners and stakeholders. And I think everybody that comes into our if I can use the expression sitcom, feels responsible <laughs> to protect the brand and the integrity of this place. That really jumps out at me. I love the notion that it's a team sport. They're not just shareholders that you think about in companies. There are stakeholders and there are stakeholders in the corporate world and in the nonprofit world too. But the world of higher education, perhaps we don't always think of that. So thank you for making that point. But the notion that it is a team sport, that institutional integrity is important. And we know there's been a lot in the news about what has happened in college athletics. And luckily, Duke's news has always been about or primarily been about national championships as opposed to anything negative. But there's a lot of discussion about college college athletes. You talked about them owning a piece of the rock. There's conversations everywhere about college students who are athletes getting paid to play in college. How do you feel about this name, image, likeness conversation that's going on? I would tell you, Lisa, for me, it is a very complicated issue as a practitioner. I think in theory, who does not want to provide as much resource as one might be able to provide to a prospective student athlete and then a matriculating student athlete who wouldn't want to sign up to be able to do that. We all want to do that within reason. We, we would like to do that. We want to go back to that when we recruit you from that living room and you make the official visit on campus. We want to over deliver. Right, right, right. So everybody wants to do it, but the devil's in the detail, as they say, and the issues that present themselves around student athlete recruitment, the size and scope of the NIL relationships with student athletes and institutions and advisors or representatives, because I'm not sure that this whole model is going to be be able to be facilitated without some outside assistance. And as I've already indicated, the recruiting circumstance that's that's tied to this. College athletics, we tend to keep score on this side (laughs) of the institution. And it really matters if you're successful as compared to not being successful. And when you put that keeping score element into the equation, quite frankly, funny things tend to happen at different institutions and different organizations because people really do want to succeed. And so I really worry about how we're going to build the appropriate guardrails to make this thing work. It's been a very permissive four or five, and maybe even longer than that, maybe as, as long as this past decade, permissive mentality within the, the collegiate athletics community. And everybody wants to, once again, subscribe to the notion of doing anything and everything we can to help this cohort and to support this cohort and to give them the opportunities to monetize their NIL and the rest of it. But building the apparatus to to maintain some degree of level playing field is really going to move from art to science. That's what's really going to be hard here. And quite frankly, there was agreement in the art side of this and the concept about 12 months ago, if not longer. And we've yet to nail down the details because the details make it very complicated. 
But listen, you're bringing nearly four decades as an AD, almost 50 years in athletics to the table. So we sure hope you're going to stay deeply engaged in this conversation and help build that apparatus, because I don't think this conversation is going away, my friend. I think there's going to be a lot more discussion. So please stay involved in all of that. But let's pull back just a little bit and let's talk about how you became an AD, because geez, oh, Pete, almost 50 years Kevin, I haven't done anything consistently for 50 years except live. And you have done just some amazing things. So let's step all the way back and take it back to where you all came from. I've often heard you say life is a cartoon. Yes. So do start with that and unpack. (laughs) Why is life a cartoon? I'm not sure it's a cartoon for everybody, but it's clearly been a cartoon for me. And I'm a kind of a cartoon player. I am very proudly a first generation high school grad in my family. A bunch of my family came from Ireland into Ellis Island and did the whole Irish immigration thing. And then I grew up in a house that was pretty ethnic Irish with grandparents, one that really couldn't speak English when he arrived and and really didn't make a great effort to learn how to speak it after he got here. He, I think he came to this country under protest by, <laughs> because he came with his spouse, who was my grandmother, and that would have been my grandfather. Oh, because we, we know the adage, Kevin, happy yeah. wife, happy life. That's the adage. And that worked. And I think he felt obligated to tag, be tagged along from Dunlow, Donegal, into, over to Brooklyn and not to be able to even speak a word of English. Wow. Anyway, I know where we come from. That's maybe the point. And, sure. and so through those couple of generations, I became the first person to graduate high school, obviously, then the first person to attend college. And and I'm the oldest of four. And for me, it was just an opportunity to move up the food chain. And I look back at this age and I can understand where I was and what what those subtle aspirations might have looked like to a young guy going as an undergrad and, and then different graduate schools and then entering this crazy athletics profession. And it has been incredibly good to me. I started as a, my wife and I started as high school teachers and coaches in Newport Ritchie, Florida. And I, I characterize my career as a career of happenstance because in, in 1973, actually, I had a very ill parent, my father, and he was terminal. And we went down to spend a very long weekend, maybe a four or five day trip from Michigan to Florida, and ended up staying for four years and coaching and teaching everything at this high school. And then from there, we inherited some great kids, some really talented kids. And then we had college coaching opportunities. And from there, we went to Central Michigan University. And and I coached track at that point at the high school level. I coached a number of things, football and wrestling and, and track. But track was my sport. And, and Jane did the same thing, my wife, and she became the women's track coach at, at Central Michigan. And then from that place, not to take you through every stop, then in those days, Lisa, talking about happenstance, if you were a coach at a university, you had to also teach. And people in this era don't understand that or, 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 how, or and I don't know how they would understand that. So you had to have a teaching credential. So I got pushed to do a master's degree where I was coaching. Then I got pushed to do a PhD. And when I, by the time I finished the PhD, then I got people knocking on the door saying, hey, will you be RAD? And I never had that as an aspiration. So happenstance again. And then smaller schools to larger schools. And all of a sudden in 2008, I got the phenomenal invitation to come to Durham and to serve Duke University. And it's 13 years later. So it's been an incredible career. 
of, of opportunity. And, and I have to use the word again, happenstance. We did not map this thing out. And here we are almost 50 years later. Which is beyond incredible. You call it happenstance. Some people call it luck, but I want to tell you what happenstance and luck are. It's ability meeting opportunity and everything happens for a reason, Kevin. And it sounds as you made all those decisions, there were skills that you garnered along the way, like thinking about the Florida situation, what made you say, okay, I'm going to go teach here and coach here. Did you pick a particular school or was that job available? And then you said I was pushed to do an MBA and then a PhD, but that's a lot of work, dude. You just skated (laughs) over that. That was nothing. So how did you make the first decision about I'm going to teach here and then get the additional credentials, which obviously you say you need a teaching certificate, but you could have stopped there. You went and got the higher stuff. It would be really hard for me to articulate just how we got going, but I think it was an emotional response to how shall I say it without sounding like a soapbox whack job here, but we grew up fairly impoverished and didn't have a lot of resource. I had a family that was struggling and a father at that point that was very sick. And I'm the oldest of four. And I go to this community, Newport Ritchie, Florida, just north of Clearwater. And I suspect the only job I could have obtained at that point was a teaching position. And probably they gave me the teaching position because I thought I could coach. So when they gave me that role and my wife got exactly the same role on the women's side of the ledger, it just formulated a plan for us that again was based on a lot of emotional competing interests in our immediate family. And uh, when I think about it, it was almost mystical. It was really crazy how it happened. And so once we plugged in, we've never been able to unplug. And so the first really challenging decision that I feel I've had as a professional is indicating to our president at Duke, Vince Price, late this past summer, I think it's time for me to retire. I think Duke needs an upgrade. I think I've been at this for so darn long. And I was looking at a, a pretty monumental birthday on the immediate horizon. And I said, you know, well, I'll think about it through the fall, but I think this is what I'm going to do. And that was the largest, most significant decision I think I've had to make through this whole happenstance career to end it. Yeah. Wow. It was hard. A seminal moment. Wasn't it Michael Jordan that says you're always supposed to go out when you're at the zenith of your career, (laughs) right? You don't wait until you're on the back nine, but you talk about this seminal birthday. Let me go back. I know you had a seminal moment in 1972 when you and Jane married, because you all have had this amazing career together, not only professionally, but certainly personally. Can you talk about like, you guys been married almost 50 years, man. Almost, yeah. And is that happy wife makes happy life too? Uh, I, I might characterize that as happenstance as well. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh, Jane's not going to like that, Kevin. No, no, she won't. But I'm the, the best thing about being my age at this point, Lisa, you become a tremendous truth teller. So at least I think I've become the ultimate truth teller. But when we think about all the wonderful things that have happened to us, and we've had five beautiful children, and four are in college athletics. And we have one that is on the outside looking in, but she's in education as well. And she's an English teacher, and that's our oldest, and a poet. And by the way, this will probably surprise you. She majors in Irish literature and Irish poetry. Oh, stop Uh, that. Really? Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, And then our four kids, the oldest one is Maureen. 
And she is, what the heck would she's like 48 years old at this point. And then I have a son that's the head basketball coach at the University of Florida, and he's 44. His name is Mike. And then I have a son that's the most recently just appointed AD at the University of Tennessee. He does what I do at Tennessee. And his name is Danny, and he's 41. And then there's Brian, who is 36 or seven. And he is the director of athletics, vice president, director of athletics, these crazy titles at uh, Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. And then our youngest, who was a Duke grad and a swimmer here at Duke, is the assistant athletics director at SMU, Southern Methodist over in Dallas. So we think about that, that ride from Michigan in early August of 1973 to Newport Ritchie, Florida, to kind of react to a bit of a family crisis has resulted in some amazing blessings for the two of us. We now have 26 members of our family. We started in that Volkswagen. We were two <laughs> and now we're 26 I mean, and four in college athletics. Who would have ever thought that? Just crazy. What's amazing to me, not only the whole come to the U.S. Ellis Island Irish background, but now you guys are covering like a quarter of the country, maybe half the country with your kids from Arizona to Texas to Florida, North Carolina with you and Jane, and then Tennessee. Jesus, you, you guys are everywhere, but I'm, <laughs> I'm loving the imprint and the footprint. So you all have led in so many ways as a couple and as a Talk to me a little bit about leadership. I know you have had four principles that you talk about a lot. Can you talk about those? I'm, I'm sure they bled over into the family too, but I know from a professional standpoint that you stand on these principles. So talk to me a little bit. About Lisa, I find myself, again, in this crazy career that we've been very fortunate to have. I feel like I'm in the leadership development business. Because mm -hmm. all those 740 young people that are on all our teams, I'm hoping and praying that they're learning some really great life lessons in addition to their respective sport. And a lot of those life lessons are formulated around this concept of leadership. And it's, it's art form, I think. And you can learn how to manage. It's a science and leadership's a bit of an art. I've used that already in this conversation, but I, I feel that and I see it. And I've tried to think about Okay, so I'm in the leadership development business, but I'm also in the leadership acquisition business. So when we're looking for senior management team members, we call it executive staff, associate ADs, assistant ADs, maybe deputy ADs. And then we're also looking for head coaches. And then head coaches are surrounding themselves with really good associate head coaches and assistant coaches and the whole food chain, the whole pyramid. And when you go to the marketplace and you try to identify what leadership looks like, and you try to take a good hard look at what you think your needs and interests are as you go to the marketplace. What's it based on? It needs to be based on something. So to your point, people that have been around me forever, we've created a matrix and we use four characteristics of leadership when we go leadership shopping or leadership developing. And mm -hmm. so the four characteristics in a nutshell are empathy. One, I do not believe you can get people to follow you if you're not terribly empathetic. And I do believe a lot of that comes from, and excuse my corniness here, comes from the bassinet. It's who you are. It's your DNA. It's, you really need to know where you come from in order to be really darn empathetic. And people that are really highly empathetic tend to be, in my view, our best leaders. The second characteristic would be task orientation. 
So you've got to be able to button up, finish, close. And if it's not you doing that, it's the people you surround yourself with. But leaders need to finish. They need to learn how to finish. The third one is adaptability, flexibility, and situational leadership. Don't tell me, David Cutcliffe, what you did at University of Tennessee. You think it's going to work at Duke. Quite frankly, it's not going to work. For me, what worked at Notre Dame wasn't going to work at Duke. For Mike Chichesky, what worked at West Point wasn't going to work at Duke. You've got to get in. you got to climb into this moment and apply a high degree of adaptability, flexibility, and situational leadership. And then the last one for me is uh, passion and intensity. I don't know anybody that's going to follow somebody that isn't pretty darn passionate, if not intense, about what the mission is or what we're trying to accomplish. And at the end of the day, what do leaders do? Leaders try to get people to do what they ordinarily wouldn't do without your helping them get to that place that they aspire to get to. But they're not going to follow you if you're not passionate and intense. And so those four characteristics, empathy, being task-oriented, flexibility, adaptability, situational, and then passion slash intensity, I think are the foundational pieces of leadership. I've read everything out there. You have too. Everybody has. But I've boiled it down to my matrix. So when I go leadership shopping, I'm looking for one, two, three, and four. That's my checklist. I'm looking for those boxes. I love the structure. I love that you have a matrix. Frankly, oftentimes we sit in interviews. I know this has happened over my career and you don't really understand what people are looking for. The title of the job is and theoretically what the responsibilities are, but oftentimes people are looking for duplicates. They're looking for someone that looks like them and talks like them and thinks like them. You are looking for some attributes that complement an entire team. It's got to be a strong person, but it's got to complement the work and the team. Talk a little bit about the culture that these four attributes as leaders brings to the table and why that perhaps has been helpful in the folks that you've brought to Duke and to the other roles that you've had as well. Elisa, I find myself thinking an an awful lot about, about fit and culture. And those are really, those are very difficult things to measure, but, and you really can't get a lot of those from resumes and, and profiles and, and you got to dig a little deep. And in this COVID time and all the remote activity that we have going, it's, I think it's especially hard to unearth those kind of attributes. But I find myself thinking about it's uh, maybe it's a Jim Collins, good to great, ism but getting the right folks on the bus is really important but then making sure they're in the right places on the bus and keeping everybody growing and quite frankly i have a privatism i think when we're all really comfortable growth stops so we got to keep everybody just a little bit uncomfortable and keep everybody we got to keep the carrot out there and keep everybody moving in a specific direction and then the last one I tell you, and I, I think this comes back from Ellis Island, if I may be so silly and bold. I, I think making sure that you treat others the way that you would like to be treated. I, I think that's 101 to life, if not leadership. It's, it's really that simple. How the heck would you want to be treated? That's exactly how you should treat everybody around you. And so when I said that, and I almost caught myself, when I'm talking about creating an environment where people find themselves a little bit uncomfortable, I tell them that coming in, I'm going to put you in that place and I owe that to you. And by the way, at the end of the month, I'm going to pay you what I can pay you. And there's some political reasons for that. Some practical reasons, <laughs> obviously, financial reasons. I'm going to help you grow your career because I'm going to make you uncomfortable and you're going to thank me for that. 
And that's the gig we got. So all of those things are the things I think about. I am always impressed with the way that you handle yourself and you handle your teammates, if I might say that. But it sounds like that authentic, candid, transparent approach has really worked for you over time. Would you say that's true or was there more to it? No, I don't think, I think it's pretty simplistic. I, I wish I was, I wish I was more complicated at times, but <laughs> people around me and close to me would tell you that uh, I err on candor. Typically I can go over the double yellow line, a little, bit, <laughs> but I really work at being transparent and being candid. And I value that. I value all the relationships of all my teammates as, as I know you do. I've come to know you quite well and you're exactly the same way. And That means a lot to me. Thank you for that. But one of the ways we have worked really closely together was through the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And you invited me to participate with USOPC. So let me thank you again for that publicly because we had a good time. And I mean that by saying that we learned a lot together and we came out on the other side with a plan on how to move forward. Talk a little bit about the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee and how you see athletics and really sport as a unifying language, if you will. It's for me, sport is almost unto itself a religious exercise, I think. It really is. It feels that way to me. And that is a fairly pronounced level. The USOPC, the Olympic movement, and, and by the way, for your listeners, Lisa did a phenomenal leadership job putting together what we called the Borders Commission. And we totally reworked and with Lisa and her small committee, relatively small when you think about that, but very well-equipped committee, redid the entire governance of, of the Olympic movement. And by the, at that point, we were really struggling. We were in a dark place. And so Lisa and her team came forth and did just a, a tremendous job in terms of reconstructing that whole system. So why is it so important? I think we'll see it here in Tokyo in, in a few short days, about a, something like 95 days out from yeah, the Olympics. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. It's pushed. It's, it's normally a quadrennial, but because of the pandemic, yeah. obviously it's yeah. been 21. And it's right on top of us. And this world will freeze on those games, those summer games. It just freezes the world. And and I think about what I'm doing currently here as I finish my life in Duke Athletics. The NCAA has been really good to the Olympic movement. 81% of the participants in Rio were either current or former NCAA athletes. All the age group and then the secondary school kids, then they emerged to the the collegiate cohort. And then they become, at some point, our Olympic team, our USA team, in almost every sport. There are a couple of sports where there's some exceptions to, to that pyramid, but it is very compelling. And it's a place within society that's held to be fairly sacred by lots of folks. And that takes me full circle back to sport in its own way is a bit of a religion. I like that. Sport is a bit of a religion. I think that is so aptly said. Kevin, as you wind down nearly 50 years in this space, how would you have us remember you? The athletes, the benefactors, the mentors, the professors, your kids in this space, how would you have us remember Kevin White? That's a very hard question for somebody like me, but if I really did my best to respond 
in transparency and uh, in total candor, I would probably hope that I did the ultimate and treated people the way that in which I would have wanted to be treated. That's, that is non-negotiable to me. So that's the first thing. And then second to that is maybe the guy could have done a lot of things bigger, faster, and stronger, but he did the best he could. And he worked his butt off. I want to be remembered as a guy that had pretty darn good work ethic and I did it for the right reasons. And I wasn't a mercenary, but at the end of the day that I treated people the right way. You have been a treasure. I want to thank you again for not only what you've done for Duke, but what you've done for all the students that you have had the opportunity to teach and mentor and guide to their next step, whether it's a career or whether it's a diploma, you have just been a treasure. And we are so grateful to have had this time today, but all the time that you've spent leaving some indelible fingerprints on sport. Lisa, thank you for having me. And uh, our relationship means a great deal to me. I've learned a heck of a lot from you. I'll never forget your great work product relative to the Borders Commission with USOPC. So thank you. You are the best. Thank you. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.